all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women. You know what we do here. We're the show that addresses issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I am your host, Dr. Michelle Owens. I am a specialist in maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics and gynecology at UMMC. Um, My co-host, Dr. Allie Brown, who is a surgical pathologist, is not currently in the studio with me. It is just me. I am the lone wolf today, along with my superstar producer, Mr. Jay White. Um, And today's topic is cervical cancer and cervical health awareness. January is Cervical Health Awareness Month. It is January. And so we are going to talk about something else that starts with C that is not COVID, thankfully, although we probably will talk a little bit about COVID. Um, But we are going to kind of just review a little bit about cervical cancer, talk about what it is, what causes it, um, how do you know if you are at risk, um, what screening options are available, and then talk a little bit about diagnosis and treatment. And in between, we will take any questions that you have. Our phone lines are open, and Liz Gill is eagerly awaiting to um, take your call. That number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 877 Two seven four six four. Um, so, oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention, um, and it's not going to be the focus of, of today's talk, but I did want to um, kind of call attention to this. Um, so, we have maternal health, um, uh, maternal health day, which is um, coming up on the twenty third of January. And um, I just want to kind of mention that this weekend there will be initiatives all across the country that will be focusing on um, maternal health and maternal health awareness. As you know, the United States has one of the highest uh, maternal mortality rates in the developed uh, of developed countries. Um, and despite all the technological advances and um, so much. Uh, access to health care, we still struggle um, when you consider other industrialized countries to um, manage to save the lives of pregnant women. So we have um, hundreds of women who die every year in childbirth. And so this weekend, there will be a lot of initiatives all across the country that will be shining a spotlight on things that we can do to uh, reduce our maternal mortality. Um, I am really proud that Mississippi is one of the states that has a maternal mortality review committee. Uh, Most states have them now, Um, but at one point in time, they were few and far between. And um, I am honored to to serve on that maternal mortality review committee where we actually do um, go back and review all of the cases where there are maternal deaths in our country. I mean, I'm sorry, in our state. And um, 
talk about things that can be done, processes that can be improved to kind of help make birthing safer for women um, across our state. So just wanted to, even though it's not the focus of uh, today's show, just kind of bring to your attention that um, in addition to learning about cervical health um, and cervical cancer in the in the month of January, that we also um, are shining a light on reduction or improvement of maternal mortality. Um, so I wonder how you guys are doing out there. Um, I said we weren't going to spend a lot of time talking about COVID, but I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that um, COVID seems to be running through this place like wildfire. Um, and, you know, we've had, I think a lot of information has been uh, in the media about the the stress, again, that we are seeing on the healthcare system. Um, with this new variant, at least here in Mississippi, Omicron seems to be the predominant variant that we're seeing. And as a result, um, it is, as you know, much more contagious than the others, the other variants that we've seen in the past. Um, but for the most part, it seems like the disease itself has not been as severe. So the people who've gotten Omicron have not been as sick as some of the folks that as the people who um, have been infected with other variants. But that being said, there seems to be a whole lot more Omicron um, going around. And um, so I was at the State Board of Medical Licensure meeting on yesterday and uh, Dan Edney, who works with the uh, State Department of Health, is the medical director, um, gave us an update on COVID and was talking about how the numbers are still continuing to rise. They are as higher, higher than what we've seen um, with any of the waves here in Mississippi. And so um, what I will say uh, to everybody who's out there, um, just stay safe, wash your hands, wear your masks, um, wear your masks, because even if you have a negative test, if you want to stay negative, the best thing for you to do is going to be to wear your mask. Um, so wear your mask. Um, and if you haven't get vaccinated um, for my pregnant ladies who are out there um, who are waiting, don't wait, don't delay, um, get the vaccine. If you can, the best vaccine to get is the one that you can get as soon as possible. Um, and hopefully that will, um, by doing those things, you'll put yourself in the best position to be able to um, protect yourself and those that you love from this virus. Um, and I can tell you we're seeing it the same on the hospital side, not just the patients that we're seeing um, in higher numbers, but we're also um, experiencing it among healthcare workers. There are plenty of people who are sick, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you might be at home quarantined or you know somebody who is. Um, and for all my healthcare workers who are out there, hearts going out to you um, as w we will kind of get through this. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, and... Um, yeah, just do what you can to stay safe, guys. So moving right along, we are going to shift gears and talk a little bit about um, cervical health and cervical health awareness. So first of all, we'll start with what is the cervix. Um, and the cervix is the um, opening or entry part uh, of the um of the uterus, so um, that is the the major female reproductive organ where um, where the baby's housed. So people say the baby's in your belly. It's not really in your belly. It's in your uterus. Um, and some of the old people call it, you know, the womb. 
I always talk about my twins and say they were roommates. Now they're roommates, but they were roommates. But um, bump. See there, Jay. Where's my sound? So okay. So my producer's off because that was the prime time. I needed. I needed the sound effect there. Jay's just making me struggle here on my own. But um, anyway, so yeah. So the cervix is um, the opening to the uterus. It is um, located at the the end of the vagina, right? So the vagina is the tube that leads up to the cervix. The cervix is the opening that leads into the uterus. Um, and the uterus is where um, when a person becomes pregnant, that's where, where the baby is, um, or at least where the baby is supposed to be because sometimes they end up in the wrong place. But um, so cervical cancer is kind of it's really a, an interesting uh, type of cancer. So um, cervical cancer is a cancer that is primarily caused by a virus, which is kind of interesting, right? We've been talking a lot about viruses and cervical cancer is primarily caused by a virus. And that virus is called the human papilloma virus or HPV. And um, about 91% of cervical cancers are attributable to these high risk human papilloma virus types. So there are over a hundred different types of human papilloma viruses. Um, and they, they have numbers, um, these subtypes, um, you know, and we've been using, you know, Delta, Alpha, like we've been using Greek letters for the COVID variants, um, for these subtle variants of the human papillomaviruses, they are numbered. There are over a hundred different types. And of those hundred different types, some of them are considered high risk um, and they are considered high risk because they have the potential, if they are not cleared, to cause changes in our body that ultimately lead to or result in cancer. And then there are also some human papillomavirus types um, that are uh, lower risk or low risk HPV types. And that is because those typically do not cause cancer. Um, and so... If you are, if you have human papillomavirus, which is primarily spread by sexual contact, so it's a sexually transmitted virus, um, then you could be infected potentially by a high risk type or a low risk type. Um, and so the only way that you would know that is by being tested for your HPV type. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to say about that, because this issue of it being a sexually transmitted virus, is that when that virus enters your body, your body has an opportunity to clear it. And so um, most of the time uh, in a person who has a normal, intact, functioning immune system, um, when they are exposed to the virus, our bodies do what they are supposed to. We are exposed to a threat and our immune system takes over and rids us of the threat or clears that virus. But there are some instances in which the body does not clear the virus and the virus hangs around and is able to um, to wreak havoc in our bodies. Um, and so I mentioned that there are low risk types and high-risk types. High-risk types are kind of associated with cancer, but those low-risk types can also cause some changes in our bodies that we typically um, 
recognized as genital warts. So you can get infected with certain low-risk types that can cause genital warts. Other types of human papillomavirus that are low-risk can also cause papillomas, hence human papillomavirus. They can cause papillomas on your vocal cords, so people can actually get oropharyngeal um, exposures and have these benign lesions or non-cancerous lesions that can also form within the throat um, and can cause problems with your airway or even with the sound of your voice or what have you. So um, lots of different ways that non-cancerous or non-cancer causing HPV can still create um, problems. So um, I feel like we've kind of gone over a quite a bit of information. It's a great place for us to take our first break of the hour. I do want to say that our phone lines are open. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring And we are going to take our first break of the hour, and we will be right back after this to kind of keep talking about human papillomavirus, cervical cancer, and cervical cancer and cervical health awareness. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to Southern Remedy for Women, and today's topic is cervical health awareness. That's right. January is Cervical Health Awareness Month, and we are talking about cervical cancer. Um, what is it? What causes it? How can you decrease your risk? Cervical cancer is really um, a horrible disease. And so if any of you are listening who have you know, family members who have been affected by cervical cancer um, or who have lost family members um, to cervical cancer, you can attest to how serious this is. And it's one of the unique um, GYN cancers in that it has been um, directly linked to the presence of um, a a viral infection, so uh, the human papillomavirus, um, which is sexually transmitted. Um, but the good news is that, hey, there is there are options for prevention and there um, are opportunities for good screening. And so um, as we're talking a little bit about cervical cancer and prevention, a big part of that is, A, the the vaccination. So there is a vaccine that's available. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, but the other part is is screening, right? So we know that, that cervical cancer is out there. We know that it is a sex, it's caused by a sexually transmitted viral infection called human papillomavirus. And the interesting thing about human papillomavirus is it's one of the most common sexually transmitted infections. So more common than some of those other things that um, that we, I think, think of when we think about sexually transmitted diseases or infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia and um, trichomonas, those kinds of things. Human papillomavirus is pretty widespread and pretty common. Um, and uh, unlike some of the other sexually transmitted infections, 
you, when you get infected with human papillomavirus, there's not really something that immediately happens, right? So a lot of those people will either have been exposed to human papillomavirus or even be able to spread the virus to somebody else um, and not even know that they have it. So for those people who kind of are like, well, how does that happen? Think about the think about what we've been dealing with with COVID over the course of the past couple of years, right? There are, there are some people who have been infected with COVID and have the ability to pass it on to other people and they never got sick. They never had a fever. They didn't have any of the upper respiratory infections, didn't have a cough, didn't have anything, just happened to have randomly been tested and found out that they were COVID positive. So just as we've seen that there can be asymptomatic um, infection and transmission of um, COVID, the same type of experience can apply to or the same situation can apply to human papillomavirus. So the folks who get HPV don't necessarily have any signs or symptoms that would alert them to their infectivity or that um, that they can or have passed it on to someone else. Um, and some sexually transmitted infections, there, is, there are situations where people have symptoms, right? Like whether it's um, discomfort, burning, or discharge, or something else that might alert them to something being wrong, um, we don't typically have that with human papillomavirus, which is another thing that makes it um, even more difficult because it's kind of transmitted silently. And it does its work relatively silently until we're able to pick up some evidence. Um, and the best way to do that is through screening. And so um, I think that's a great segue for us to talk about what kinds of screening um, is currently available. Um, and so the, the first thing is just is a pap smear. Um, and so pap, the pap smear itself is where... Um, the cervix is visualized uh, and an exam is done where a sampling of the cells along the the cervix are actually taken. So you want a sample of the cells on the inside of the cervix, the tube that leads up to the opening of the uterus. And then you also want some cells from a sampling of the cells from the outside. And that information is sent to our pathology friends and colleagues um, through a pap smear that those cells are then looked at under a microscope and examined for evidence of changes that would indicate um, an existing um, human papillomavirus or HPV infection. And the other thing that they can also do is if those changes are present, um, they can also do typing for uh, human papillomavirus. So they can determine whether or not the high-risk HPV types or low-risk HPV types are present. So um, the pap smear has been one of the most significant contributions to women's health because prior to um, the utilization of the pap smear as a screening tool, um, you really wouldn't have a way to determine that a person either had a precancerous lesion um, or that they had these changes on their cervix until they actually had something that was visible to the naked eye. And, you know, as we often say here um, with cancer, early detection is key. And so the pap smear was the way that we were able to 
successfully and consistently screen for cervical cancer and in so doing intervene at earlier time frames before people um, would have, you know, more advanced or more severe disease. That being said, there are still healthcare disparities and gaps that exist. And so we still find ourselves struggling to be able to capture everyone um, equally. Um, and so there are still people who struggle with limited access to health care, those people who live in more remote areas of the world um, for whom cervical cancer is still a significant health problem and a significant health risk because the screening test is only good if the person can actually access the screening test. Um, And so throughout our country, there are multiple organizations um, that work to increase access for people to cervical cancer screening as well as even for breast cancer, right? So we know that breast cancer is also a significant contributor to mortality for, um, for women, and so making sure that those people who are at risk um, have access to appropriate screening is really the first step in ensuring that those people um, have the best opportunity to be their healthiest selves. So um, one thing to remember is that the pap smear does involve a, an exam with a speculum. But just because somebody puts a speculum in your vagina doesn't mean that you have gotten a pap smear. So I just want to make that very clear. Um, a lot of times we will, people will say, oh, I had a pap smear. Um, and somebody may have done an exam. They may have obtained cultures or they may have taken samples from the vagina for a variety of other reasons. Um, but they may not have done a pap smear. A pap smear um, in and of itself is specifically a screen for cervical cancer. And there's lots of other things. I'm an OBGYN. There are lots of other things that we do down there. Um, But every time that we do an exam, we're not necessarily doing a pap smear. So this is kind of one of those things that it's really great for you to clarify with your um, healthcare clinician, whoever that may be, that if you are getting an exam of your genital area whether it involves a speculum exam or not, just to clarify with them exactly what it is that's being done. People should tell you that in advance. But in case you don't get that information on the front end, make sure you get it on the back end. Um, And so one of the questions that came uh, in the studio was, what about screening for men? And that is an excellent question because I know, fellas, y'all are out there listening and you're like, oh, this might not be relevant for me. But it is because let me tell you. So HPV is the causative agent in over 90% of um, cervical cancers, but it also causes other cancers. And some of those cancers are com- are more common in men. And so one of those is like oral cancer and esophageal cancer is caused by HPV or the human papillomavirus, but also penile cancer. And while penile cancer is something that occurs much less frequently, um, it is also directly related to infection with HPV. And we talked about the fact that it's a sexually transmitted infection. And so if you are having, you know, unprotected sex, then you are at risk. And if you get exposed to human papillomavirus, it can lead to, um, to penile cancer. And the thing is that, so while women have pap smears for cervical cancer detection, 
there is no great screening for males for HPV um, related cancer, especially in the genital areas. So they do have screenings that they can do for oral pharyngeal cancers. Um, and we've talked, I think, before on this show about how dentists can do those screenings and you can have ENT people, microvascular people, surgeons who can screen for those things when they're doing oral exams. But um, there's not a great screening test for um, for men. And so fortunately, again, the things that are the worst tend to happen in the least frequency. And so penile cancer is a rare cancer, but it does occur. And for those people who are at risk, who are essentially anybody who's had sex, who's been exposed to the human papillomavirus, um, there's not great screening for um, for men when it comes to the gen- genital component of human papillomavirus. So um Gotta love these people at MPB, man. Everybody in the studio always has questions, and so I really appreciate um, our my MPB family for for feeding that question because that's something that I probably would have neglected to mention, um, but it's something that's really important. Um, as we are talking a little bit about screening, I do kind of want to go back to uh, what the current recommendations are, and that's because those recommendations have changed. And so many of you who are listening, some of you remember where you go to your OBGYN or you go to your doctor once a year. Every year you go for your woman exam, you get your pap smear every year. Um, and over time, as we have learned more about what causes cervical cancer and have kind of moved away from being more interventional early on for some of the lower risk lesions, um, that there have been some changes um, with respect to uh, who should be screened and when screening should start. So some of you may be familiar with, oh, well, at first it was, oh, well, when you have puberty, you take your you take your your child to the doctor and at the time of puberty is when you start having your your female exams or what have you and then it was well at least for for pelvic exams or at least for for cervical cancer screening since it's a sexually transmitted infection then it would make sense that you probably wouldn't have to screen the person until they became sexually active so then it was like oh well we'll just wait when they have sexual intercourse then that would be the time at which you would start screening um and so now the most recent guidelines have actually changed a little bit more um and so now the the recommendations are that you actually start screening or have pap your pap test um at age 21. And so um, even if you are sexually active prior to the age of 21, the recommendations are that that cervical cancer screening um, would not begin until age uh, 21. And so if you have a normal initial exam, then in many instances, you will probably not have to have another um, exam for at least three years. So that's a little different um, for those of you who might have a little bit more uh, gray up top. It's a little different than than what you may have been accustomed to. But um, the reality is that now we are doing um, fewer pap tests, fewer pap smears. Um, and while we 
take the results of those uh, tests very seriously, um, we probably there's been a, a push to be less aggressive for some of the earliest lesions and to give the body the time that it needs to actively prove that it is not able to fight off the infection before we start doing our interventions. And I think that all in all, that has probably been a good thing um, in the, for the most part, um, because there are probably a lot of people who've known about having precancerous lesions or some early abnormal cells, and they might have had them frozen or had them uh, burned off or other types of interventions that might have dissipated on their own if we had just kind of given it a little bit more time. So um, those are kind of the recommendations that most of us are going by. Additionally, we have the opportunity to, as I mentioned earlier, to check for the presence of those high-risk HPV types. Um, and so these are, and again, these are going to be recommendations for those people who have like a normal immune system. Um, and so I would say definitely if you are a person who's immunocompromised, then you should have a conversation with your clinician about the schedule with which you should be screened for cervical cancer. So, for example, if you are HIV positive, then your um, your schedule for pap smears and those things are going to be a little different because you are at a higher risk. And if there's something abnormal, then it's going to need to be followed up a little bit more, a lot more aggressively than a person who has an intact immune system and has the ability to fight off this virus. So um, there are some instances, just like with COVID, where those people who are immunocompromised might need to have an adjustment. But for the most part, um, if you are 21, that would be the time in which your pap screening should begin. And it would occur if it's normal, um, typically no more than every three years. And in some instances, they're talking about going to five. The interesting thing is that there's some discussion now in some of the other organizations about moving away from the sampling of the cells altogether and using um, just the HPV serotyping. So determining whether or not the HPV is present or if you've been exposed to the HPV serotypes. And if you don't have an exposure to a high risk HPV serotype, then not to do pap smears at all. There's a lot of controversy surrounding that um, when it comes to the professional organizations. There's the OBGYN Society and the pathologists and everybody's uh, and and then some of the cancer societies and everybody's really trying to put their heads together to figure out what the best balance is going to be um, in order to move forward. But technology has really moved us um, in a positive direction. And so we do have the ability to know a lot more um, with a whole lot less intervention, which I think works out in the most part for the most part. Um, for for the better for everybody. Um, well, um, so the music's playing. So I guess that means it's time for us to take our next break of the hour. Jay, Jay must have looked at me and realized that I needed a sip of water. So we're going to go ahead and take our next break of the hour. When we come back, we're going to talk about risks for cervical cancer and move on to some of the diagnosis and treatment. Again, our phone lines are open and we are taking your calls at one eight seven seven mpb ring This is Southern Remedy for Women and we'll be right back after this. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. 
and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Southern Remedy for Women, where we address issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and we are talking about cervical cancer and cervical health awareness. January is Cervical Health Awareness Month, and we are talking about cervical cancer and human papillomavirus and occasionally COVID because you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so we've kind of talked a little bit about screening and we've talked about um, basically what it is, what causes it um, and some of the other uh, some of the other issues that can arise from human papilloma virus infection. Um, but now we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, what the risk factors are. And so we talked about, of course, the major one which is human papillomavirus, um, which is a sexually transmitted um, virus. Um, But additionally, there are some other things that can increase your risk for cervical cancer. And so one of them, of course, is having multiple sexual partners. Um, And I will say that there's a disclaimer here. Um, So while that can increase your risk, Sex, sexual intercourse or, or sexual activity is, is a risk factor in and of itself. And so I think that there's also a misperception that if you are a person who's only had one sex partner, that then there's no way you could have it or that you might not have been exposed. And I would just say that, of course, the more partners you have, the greater your risk because there are more opportunities for exposure. Um, but it is not something that is, you know, only for those people who I think sometimes people say, oh, well, you, if you're promiscuous, then th- those, th- those are the people who get it. And in actuality, it is it is common amongst the the more more pious, prim and proper and also the promiscuous. So it's kind of like not one of those that really has a any respective person. Um, so just know that. And I think that's one of the misperceptions that sometimes gives people a false sense of security, right? Um, but that's why it's really important that that all all women um, are screened. Um, other things that can increase your risk, um, if you are, of course, immunocompromised. Um, so if you have um, HIV, that can increase your risk. Smoking actually increases your risk. And so one of the one of the one of the benefits for those people who have decided to put down the cigarettes um, in January, good for you. Um, if you happen to be a woman, that has also, that will also help to decrease your risk for cervical cancer um, because smoking um, increases your risk. Um, if you have used um, birth control pills for a long period of time, that can increase your risk. Now, there's nothing in the hormones that necessarily contributes to that, but that is kind of one of the things. Um, if you have um, given birth to multiple children, um, then that also slightly increases your risk. Um, so all of those are different things that can increase your risk for um, for 
cervical cancer. Um, and so for my for my pregnant women who are out there who might have had a pap smear and who have HPV, one of the questions that I get is, oh, well, if I have HPV or if I've been told that I have an HPV or a high-risk HPV type, then, um, you know, does that have any implication for my pregnancy? And the answer to that is no. Um, we do um, occasionally detect people who may have some abnormalities of their cervix at the at the time of uh, their pregnancy. So when you come in for your pregnancy care, if you have not had a pap smear that was up to date and you have one, sometimes if we detect an abnormality, we just refer those people for additional testing. Um, but most of the people who are HPV positive um, and who have a lower risk lesions or no lesions at all, go on and have perfectly um, perfectly normal pregnancies. It is exceptionally rare for us to find um, a, a problem during pregnancy that ultimately ends up you know, requiring intervention during that time. So most folks are able to have a normal pregnancy without any problems. And the other thing is that we don't worry um, a lot about transmission um, to the baby. So it's not like um, we we worry about a high rate of transmission of HPV um, during the birthing process. So having a baby deliver, um, even if the mom has... Um, a cervical abnormality um, doesn't necessarily increase risk, and it's not something that we, we worry about from transmission. So those are just a couple of things for people to be aware of. Um, oh, and with fertility. So um, there have been a lot of issues or questions that have arisen um, as it pertains to um Vaccines. We were talking about vaccines. So there's a vaccine for the human papillomavirus. Um, there's a quadrivalent vaccine, which means it covers four different types. And then there's a nonavalent vaccine that covers nine different types. Um, and so the those um, vaccines are available and are on the immunization schedule, um, the recommended immunization schedule for um, for children. And so routine vaccination can actually start at nine years of age, um, but it's typically around 11 to 12. Um, and you can do so they have a two dose regimen. They also have a three dose schedule. And so you'll need to talk to your doctor about who gets two or who gets three. And typically what happens is the two dose schedule is recommended for the people who get their first dose before their 15th birthday. Um, and those are typically given at um, six to 12 month intervals. And so, but the minimum interval is going to be five months between the first and the second dose. And so um, this is not a, a one, one shot fits all. Um, so typically two, but if you get the first dose on or after your 15th birthday, or for people who are immunocompromised, then it's recommended that those people get three. And so, um, and the vaccine is actually um, recommended or it's approved, it's approved and recommended um, as early as nine years of age and um, actually can be given in adults um, all the way up to, well, really from 
27 to 45 years if they are considered inadequately vaccinated. Um, but typically from nine to around 26 years. Um, so you can get, they have routine vaccination. If you're out of sync or if you only get one, then you can do catch-up vaccination up to 26. And then for those people who are 27 to 45, and it's a little that's a little bit more recent, um, they've extended the time frame in which people can be offered the vaccine if they are inadequately vaccinated up to 45 years of age. So just, I know that there's a lot of discussion right now about vaccination and it's kind of a hot topic or a hot button issue for a lot of people. People feel very strongly in this pandemic about the COVID vaccine. Um, we are still very much proponents of a vaccination. We have promoted the COVID vaccine here on the show. Um, but also, um, I also am, um, as an, as a, healthcare provider. I also um, encourage people to um, protect themselves and their families against HPV because I mean, it's cancer. Um, it can, it can cause cancer. And, um, and that is for both females and for males. So the vaccine can also be given um, to, to males. And I think that's really important um, because if we are really going to make a, a significant impact and and really change um, cervical cancer rates, penile cancer rates, oral cancer rates, um, esophageal cancer rates, all of those different um, cancers that are caused by HPV, then we really are going to have to make sure that, that men and women um, are protected. And um, the best way to protect them is before their exposure. So to have them protected before um, the issue of sexual intercourse becomes a part of the equation is really the best way. You want to be protected before before the threat. Um, that's the best way for you to be prepared um, when you come in contact with the potential offending agent. Um, so want to mention that. And just to also say that, you know, when, whenever we, now that we're talking about vaccines, I always have to talk about fertility because somebody made people believe somehow that the COVID vaccine has a link to, to infertility, which is not true, by the way. Um, but that being said, now I always have to add a disclaimer when we talk about other vaccines um, as it pertains to fertility. And so just so you know. The um, vaccine for human papillomavirus does not cause fertility problems, has no link to infertility, and does not cause any problems with um, with fertility or reproduction. Um, so just want to make sure that people are very clear on that because I think um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And even though we're talking about something totally different than COVID, I think that what we've learned and what we've seen in COVID, sometimes people kind of want to mix it up or maybe even kind of say, well, if it happened or if it could happen in this instance, then, you know, maybe what's going on over here. So I think it's really important for us to be really clear, no issues with fertility, but it can prevent cancer. Um, it is a safe and effective vaccine, especially considering the fact that HPV infects 13 million people each year. 13 million people. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people and a lot of HPV. Um, and by vaccinating, we can prevent 90% of these cancers, which 
it's crazy when you think about it um, that you could prevent 90 percent of cancers through the administration of a vaccine, consistent administration of a vaccine. And I think there'd be a ton of oncologists who would love to, you know, have a little less work to do um, if they knew that people could be protected. I mean, it makes the it makes the treatment piece a whole lot easier if you never get it in the first place. There's that. So um, moving on to um, some of the symptoms. And this is this is a, a, a difficult part about cervical cancer, because most of the time people who have cervical cancer don't really have a ton of symptoms. And um, so sometimes they can have um, pain during intercourse um, or you can have um, bleeding or you can have. Um, some symptoms that are related to the presence of cancer um, that may impact other things. So you might have uh, something like you could have blood in your urine or you could have um, changes in your bladder function or other things that could be caused by the tumor invading into surrounding tissues, right? So the cervix lives next to the bladder. It also lives next to um, to your bowel or your rectum. And so um, any of those areas can be affected if there is a cancer that develops there. Um, and because of where the cervix is located, it's not something that you typically see. So you're not typically going to see a bulge or something like that initially, um, unless somebody's doing an exam and they may notice it on exam, they may see an abnormal or unusual mass. But again, cancer starts out by just a few cells rapidly dividing, and it takes a while for those tumors to become significant enough or big enough that they can be seen by the naked eye. And usually by the time that they're seen by the naked eye, they, they've kind of become, they've been around for a while. Um, we do know that cervical cancer tends to be a relatively slow um, growing cancer for the most part. Um, but the the other side of that is that by the time people have symptoms and, and it's kind of become more advanced, there may be fewer options available for, um, for a cure. And so that's kind of why the, the screening is important and also, I will say this, the follow-up is important, and I can't emphasize that. I have a, a lot of patients who have, um, I've had a couple of patients who've said, you know what, Dr. Owens, I, I know you said I got this abnormal pap smear. I know I need to go and get it followed up, but I just can't take another piece of bad news right now. I just, I've heard about this. This has happened in my life. This is going on. And, and if I have it, I just don't want to know. And... And so the next question is, well, why don't you want to know? And they're like, well, because I don't want to die. And I said, well, I would assure you that if you don't want to die, then you want to know. And that's a different way of thinking about it. But if you don't want to die, you want to know. Because only when you know do you have the ability to deal with it and to be treated and to get it fixed or taken care of. Um, and so I totally get it. I get the, the fear um, if somebody tells you that you have an abnormality, that all of a sudden opens up a whole new world of, of anxiety and stress and, and frustration and worry, um, especially if you have somebody in your family who has suffered with any type of cancer. Um, it can be very triggering. 
Um, if you are a person who's had cancer and is a cancer survivor and all of a sudden you're being faced with the potential for that threat again, or if you have another chronic medical problem and you've been really struggling with that, um, sometimes it seems like if there's one more bit of information or one more bit of bad news that you're not going to be able to deal with it. But I would just say that when you feel that way, you have to acknowledge that, know that that is a normal response, but then push through it. Um, And so with respect to diagnosis, it is by biopsy. Um, So you take a sample of the tissue and then send it to the pathologist and they confirm it. Um, And treatment um, sometimes can be surgical um, and and can also include uh, chemotherapy or radiation. Um, And typically it is a combination of um, those different modalities in order to get people back to on on the road to health. So um, those are the different ways that cervical cancer is treated. It is um, most cancers or many cancers are surgically staged. Cervical cancer, however, is clinically staged. So you'll have to get a series of um, imaging studies, CT scans and the like, um, in addition to a really good exam typically performed by a GYN oncologist. So that is a female cancer doctor. Um, and then um, have a treatment plan set up and established by that time. So um, we are coming up on the end of this particular broadcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, Just want to recap, 90% of cervical cancer is caused by HPV. HPV infects about 13 million people per year. Um, It is one of the most common sexually transmitted viral infections, and it is not a symptomatic viral infection, so you do not know if you have it, um, but it can be detected. Um, With respect to cervical cancer, uh, the screening mechanism is the pap smear, and early detection is the key. Um, And so just make sure that you are getting screened appropriately And if you have an abnormality on your pap smear, it is very, very, very important for you to follow it up and make sure that you get resolution for whatever issue that has been identified. So you guys hear the music. That means it is time for us to go. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening. Allie Brown, we missed you. I know you would have loved to talk about all the pathology neatness that you do when it comes to cervical cancer prevention and detection. Um, Today's show was produced and engineered by Jay White, and Liz Gill was the call screener and also who passed on some other great questions during the breaks. Um, I am Dr. Michelle Owens, and on behalf of Allie Brown and myself, thank you so much for listening. Join us next week where we will be here, same time, same bat channel. Um, Southern Remedy for Women at 11 o'clock. NPR's Here Now is next on MPB Think Radio. Y'all be safe. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.